Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. Today, I am speaking with Alyssa Lakes, who is going to be sharing her story, both of a breast cancer diagnosis, having a BRCA mutation, and a second cancer diagnosis of a rare brain cancer called an ependymoma. So she'll tell us all about that. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Thanks for joining me, Alyssa. How are you? Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm doing good today. Can you start by introducing yourself, telling listeners a little bit about who you are, and then we can kind of get right into your diagnosis and your story and all of that? Sure. Um, I'm a 41-year-old mom of a five-year-old boy. I work in advertising and have basically been working in advertising since I graduated college. And uh, my husband, uh, who's originally from New England, uh, relocated to Long Island where we live now um, because of his teaching job. He's a high school music teacher. So we've been here on Long Island for quite some time. I grew up on Long Island, um, technically Queens, and then my parents moved to New Hyde Park, which is Western Long Island. Um, and, uh, cancer, unfortunately has been uh, a part of my life since I was about 10 years old. And when you say that, what happened when you were 10? When I was 10 years old, my mom was first diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. And this was around 1990, uh, when, the chemo regimen of adriamycin, cytoxin, and taxol were relatively new and exploratory. My sister was two years old, so it was a it was a challenging time. And um, back then, a breast cancer diagnosis was different in a lot of ways than it is now. My mom worked full time through treatment. The treatment regimens were not what they are today because it was new and exploratory and they didn't have the same type of pre-meds that they have today. So my mom was very sick and she worked through all of it. Um, It was a lot of trauma and emotion going on in our family at the time. And then fast forward to uh, when I was in college, my mom was diagnosed again with triple negative ductal carcinoma, but this time it was in the opposite breast and it was completely unrelated to the first. The first time she had a lumpectomy with chemo and radiation. The second time she decided to pursue a radical mastectomy. And the second time was about 2000 uh, 2001. And that's when the information about the BRCA gene first started coming into the forefront. 
of the genetic mutation side of connection to breast cancer. And being that we're Ashkenazi and of Jewish Ashkenazi descent, my mom decided to test for it. And she did in fact test positive for BRCA1. So I was only about 20, 21 years old. I was uh, still in school. My parents didn't tell me that my mom was in active treatment because they didn't want to upset me while I was away. They wanted me to finish the semester. And then when I came home in May, um, she was in the middle of chemo. So it was like a bomb. (laughs) You know, I had a lot of trauma and a lot of um, bad visual memories from when she was sick the first time. So when they told me she was sick again in the airport, mind you. And that she was in the middle of chemo, I was a mess. Um, And I remember very vividly when I came home, my mom was standing behind the glass door in the kitchen, looking out to the driveway, and she was very afraid to see me because she knew it was going to be upsetting, and I was very afraid to see her. But we embraced and we hugged, and I helped her as much as I could when I was home. And she was scheduled to have the deep flap surgery in September. And also back then, this was a relatively new procedure. So I wanted to stay and help with recovery. We all knew it was going to be a lengthy recovery. But because her procedure was in September, she wanted me to go back to school and finish. That's really what she wanted. So I decided to go back. And my father and my sister uh, were the ones who helped her recover from that procedure. But luckily, since then, that was, you know, back in the early 2000s, she has been in remission. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, we were, we're very lucky and everything worked out. Uh, it was about four years later when I was 25, she told me about the BRCA mutation and she explained that there's a 50-50 chance it could be passed down to my sister and or I. That was like another bomb going off because when you grow up in a household um, where you have an illness to that level of devastation, especially as a young girl, it, it has a tremendous impact on everything. So I think I already identified with her struggle and her illness. So when it was sort of like confirmation, like, yeah, your chances of getting this cancer are extremely high. And if you don't do something about it, you will end up in the same position that your mother was in, which is basically your worst fear. But at that time, this was 2005, Doctors weren't necessarily recommending prophylactic mastectomies in 20-something-year-old women. There were really no support groups out there. There was FORCE, which uh, stands for Facing Our Risk of Cancer Empowered. But as a 25-year-old, I was in the minority, and the majority of women that were involved with the organization were much older. So I did not feel comfortable. And I did not feel any sense of connection or support from that. So I kind of 
went through the journey on my own for a while. I enrolled in a research study at the NIH, which was designed to help detect which screening techniques are best at finding cancer early. Um, that was not a good idea for me to be a part of. Um, it was not a good experience. I dropped out of the study. And it wasn't until I found a breast surgeon local here on Long Island when I was about 30 years old that the conversations started to arise about having a prophylactic mastectomy. And I couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, I wasn't ready emotionally, physically. I wanted to try and have a child. I wanted to breastfeed. My mom was first diagnosed when she was 39. I thought I had more time. So I was very diligent about screenings. I would flip-flop MRIs, sonos, mammos. I was really on top of it. I mean, I, I did not act like my life was in this big box of denial. I, I knew that I had the gene. I knew the clock was ticking. I knew that if I wanted to have children, it had to be relatively soon. And that if I were to prevent my risk of cancer, I would have to take prophylactic steps relatively soon, which is a lot of pressure on a marriage, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of pressure. And it took us longer to conceive than we would have liked. Um, and I had, mind you, I had all my screenings right before I was diagnosed. Everything was clear. There were, there were never any issues. And then about six months after I had my son while I was breastfeeding is when I found the lump in my right breast, yada, 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 biopsy, triple negative breast cancer, actually the exact same breast cancer my mom had twice and the same staging. It was stage two. And what was, you know, what's going through your mind when you're breastfeeding, when you're feeling that mass, when you get diagnosed, you know, given everything that you've lived in the last few decades and experienced with your family, what was your reaction? And, you know, how did you process all of that? It was very, Whew. it's hard to put into words because when you are a new mom for the first time and you're breastfeeding your child, you view, it, it was really the first time in my life that I viewed my breasts as nourishment versus detriment. And it really came on so suddenly and out of nowhere. I mean, when they say that triple negative breast cancer is aggressive, it is because it grew from nothing to stage two within four months, maybe five months. It was quick. Um, and it was like a whirlwind in my family. I think my mom was really angry because she felt as though she didn't do enough to protect me. And my husband and I were just like, wow, we have a new baby and now we're going to be starting chemo. What is that going to be like? Uh, luckily, my son was young enough where he doesn't remember any of it. And we also had a lot of help from family and friends. So, you know, without that, it would have been a lot more challenging. 
Um, my, my parents would take my son for every chemo. Uh, and then when um, I was done and I was preparing for my mastectomy, my mom would uh, come here and stay over here often to help out. And we just, you know, you're kind of in that like fight or flight mode and your adrenaline kicks in and you just go, 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 go. And luckily I had a complete response to chemo. So I did not need radiation after my mastectomy. Good. Yeah. Very lucky. Do you have advice for people who are in it now or about to in it, you know, it's such a hard time. And you mentioned it's the fight or flight, it's the adrenaline, but are there any practical tips that you can share that, you know, little things that may have helped you or, or maybe things you didn't do that you wish you had done during that time? I would say that you should never feel guilt or shame in asking for help from whoever in your family or friend network that is there who can help um, because you need it, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, your body is going to war. Um, You're going through some really harsh cocktails of chemotherapy and your body needs to rest. Your body needs to be able to be in the best position it can be to get through it. Um, and that there's the, 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 the holding on to any emotions of guilt or shame of asking for help, or even just as a new mom, you know, feeling any sense of, of guilt or shame for knowing that you can't spend as much time with your baby as you normally would, um, or having other family members and friends watch your baby because you are too sick to. Um, It's very, very difficult to go through that. But in the end, it's what helps the most. Um, Not to take away from the fact, though, that there's loss there. There, Mm -hmm. there's, There's loss in that time when you're going to chemo and you're fighting cancer and you're not physically able to be there with your baby, it, there is loss there. Absolutely. And it's valid and it's okay to, to work through that and accept that because it's true. I really like that perspective. I think that so often there's this push, you know, you've got this, you're going to be a fighter, you're going to be positive. But I think it's really valid to talk about that it is a grieving process and that, you know, I tell people you're grieving the life and the day to day that you thought you were having and the part you were living. And now you have to reconcile with this new life. Um, And it's important to feel those emotions and to to move through them and to process them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And and. You know, the one thing that I think a lot of cancer fighters struggle with is getting really caught in the um, gravity and depth of despair, which is so real because when you're in it, it feels like it'll never end and it's not true. So it's hard at the time to have that perspective, but 
if you're able to keep that perspective and not get overwhelmed by the duration of it all, it makes it easier. And how did you pull yourself through and how did you keep from getting overwhelmed? Because it is a very daunting and lengthy process. And I was talking to someone about it today. You know, you go through chemo, you go through surgery, go through radiation if you need it. And for some, you know, for some patients, they need more treatment, whether it be hormone blocking medication or more chemo. And it's at some point, you're kind of just mentally exhausted from this, right? So how do you move through that exhaustion? Yes. You allow yourself or I allowed myself the space to heal emotionally, physically, um, spiritually, because it takes time and going through it. It's more of a perspective of one day at a time. Okay. Because anything, at least for me, anything more than that was too overwhelming. Let me just tackle this moment this day. Um, And then when you start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, that motivates you to go the distance. And then when all of that is done, right. And you're like, okay, so I finished treatment. I'm recovered from my mastectomy. I'm going to start to enter quote real life again, which for me was going back to a full-time job. Um, I honestly did not realize how difficult that transition was going to be until I did it. And I remember the first day when I went back into my office and I sat there looking around at my desk and my office walls, thinking to myself, wow, nothing has changed here physically. And everybody else at the company has just been getting on with their lives. I mean, for them, it was just another day at work. And here I am after this, you know, year and a half missing in action, uh, fighting a terrible disease um, crisis uh, back at my office, like going back to work as if nothing ever happened. (laughs) It's bizarro and it's okay to to, to feel all of those emotions because they're all valid and they're all true. And these are all processes that as survivors, we have to work through as we start to engage back in our day-to-day lives prior to chemo and also strongly, highly recommend therapy, hundred mm-hmm. percent hands down therapy, because it is so heavy that you cannot expect to get through it on your own. And there is no shame in that. That's a really important point. Mental health is very often, I don't want to say ignored, but it kind of is pushed during the initial, you know, during chemo and especially during uh, treatment, it's kind of pushed to the back burner because you're so busy focusing on all the physical side effects and the, the healing and the, you know, the nausea and the appetite and all of that. But especially when you're done with active treatment, mental health has to take a priority because you have to kind of process everything that you've lived and gone through. And I, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, post-traumatic stress and a lot of, you know, and there's no, there's no shame in any of that, but we, the more we talk about it, I think the more people recognize that it's okay to not feel joyous when you're done with treatment. You know, people come to me and they say, well, you, 
I, I should feel happy, right? Everyone tells me I should feel happy, but I don't. Yeah, that's, I've heard the same. Very, very, very common. Because your body has been through a war. And when you go through war, come out the other side, hopefully victorious, whatever that may look like, there's definitely trauma to work through. Um, and your body goes through so much physically, emotionally, that you also have to allow yourself the, the time to work through that. And as long as you have a perspective that, you know, even talking to a therapist, that it is going to take a certain amount of time to really work through all of these things. And it also may be ongoing for quite some time um, to resolve some of these traumatic uh, struggles. You know, it's, it's okay to remind yourself to be patient with yourself <laughs> as you're going through that process. I agree. I think that that's really important, giving yourself grace and, and being patient with yourself to take the time that you need. What did life look like for you, you know, after you were done kind of with that initial treatment with the chemo and the surgery? Well, I was eager to physically get back to looking, quote, more like myself. Um, I started to exercise regularly. I never lost that baby weight because I went right into chemo and, um, and started to really focus on getting healthy physically and mentally. Um, but it was a struggle for my husband and I. Because, you know, to be perfectly honest, there were probably issues in the marriage prior to the cancer diagnosis. So the cancer diagnosis just exacerbated everything. And I think that in the aftermath, we realized that we needed help too, um, particularly with the intimacy aspect. And, um, you know, we went through a good two years of marriage counseling and, um, you know, we still have um, some issues to work through that I feel more guilt and shame about because it relates back to the cancer and the changes in my body and, you know, even just the trauma of going to get regular screenings for cancer when I was in my 20s. And early 30s and how um, violating and insecure you can feel about all of that because you're exposing yourself um, to various doctors, very private parts of your body for something that um, really most women don't really have to think about until they're in their 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. And that has affected me a great deal. Um, and I, I still struggle with it to this day. I do. Um, but it's okay to not just, uh, you know, proceed with therapy one-on-one -on -one for yourself, but also to proceed with marriage counseling to help your, your family and your marriage, you know, in the aftermath of the crisis as well. And how did you address, you know, in addition to like marriage counseling, but did you have these conversations with your husband about things that you were struggling with? And, you know, in terms of, 
intimacy and, you know, uh, fertility and, you know, all of that. Did you guys have those conversations and what advice can you share to people in similar situations? We did. Um, I did share because it was evident that it was a really tough time for me. And um, I still struggle with it to this day. Um, and each person is different and what works for, for one person may not work for another, but, um, you know, I was the one in the relationship who wanted to have a second child and my husband did not. And that was one of the things that we worked through in marriage counseling, because I was approaching 40. And when you're BRCA positive, you know, that it's in your best interest to have your ovaries removed because of your risk of ovarian cancer. And my husband and I came to an agreement that we would try for a second for a certain period of time. And if it didn't happen naturally, then we knew it was not meant to be. And I would proceed with the prophylactic oophorectomy. Um, we did pursue IVF and it was discussed. Um, and I was the one who ultimately pulled the plug on it because he wasn't as supportive of it as I would have liked. And it was too much for me to handle in the aftermath of everything that we went through with the breast cancer. Um, I, I could not deal with the gravity of all the doctor appointments and discussing all the steps and it was too much for me. Um, and also knowing that he wasn't totally on board. So I pulled the plug on it and then we tried for, I want to say about eight or nine months to conceive naturally. I started getting my period again after we stopped the Zolodex injections and I did Zolodex injections to help protect my ovaries during chemo. Um, but it was not meant to be because over the eight or nine months that we tried, we were not successful. And then it was basically a countdown to when I was going to have my ovaries and tubes removed. And I knew he was not also not supportive of freezing my eggs. That must've been really, really hard. It was really, really hard. But thank you for your honesty and for sharing that because so often you don't get this perspective. And I think that it's something that many people struggle with and may often feel that they are alone because this is not something that's talked about. So I, I really appreciate you being so open about it. Sure. And it's a lot more common even now for a lot of BRCA women to start freezing their eggs in their 20s, right? Before they're even in serious relationships or, or looking to get married. Um, and it's too bad that the timing of everything for me was just in a different, uh, world when it came to all of this, they, um, things are very different now, which is good in a good way because it should be talked about. Yeah. I mean, years ago, 
it was, you know, it really until, I mean, one of the reasons it was Angelina Jolie went public with her decision and, and that, it, you know, people started talking about it more, but it definitely nowadays people know what it is. They recognize the term, you know, it's not as taboo, I think, as it was even, you know, 10 years ago. Yes, I fully agree that even just within the last five years, so much movement and change has been made with these types of situations. And I think it is much more commonly discussed now than ever before for younger women who are in this similar situation as, you know, finding out you have this type of mutation. Absolutely. And you were uh, diagnosed with the brain cancer. How did that come about? Can you share a little bit about that experience? Sure. Um, that came out of nowhere. <laughs> as honest as I could put it. I uh, have been, you know, following up with my breast oncologist since I ended treatment and surgery. And um, no, there was never any other, you know, surprises or anything out of left field. I had the oophorectomy. I've been on hormone replacement therapy. Um, which is a, both a estrogen and progesterone combo because I kept my uterus. Everything's been pretty much status quo with that. So uh, in August, late August, I started to notice some strange sensations with two of my uh, fingers on my left hand, my index and middle finger would last for a few seconds and go away. And then as the weeks progressed into October, I started to notice with these two fingers that my bottom jaw would twitch a little bit. And while it was twitching, would have a harder time really saying much of anything, but it lasted a very short period of time and happened very infrequently, mind you. So I had a psychiatrist at the time because I was on medication for anxiety and ADD and, um, you know, she said that, that it could be a side effect of being on the treatment. So we had decided to wean off the treatment. And then, um, in November I had an episode where it was more severe, uh, not just my jaw would twitch, but nearly the whole left side of my face started twitching and it lasted about a minute. Then she said, I think you need to see a neurologist. And I agreed. So I made an appointment with a neurologist. Another week or two went by and I had another bad episode. And I say episode because at the time I did not know they were seizures, but they were seizures. And this particular seizure happened when I was in the shower and it was the worst yet. And it lasted for longer than a minute and it freaked me out. So. I went to the ER and told them that I'm a breast cancer survivor and they sent me for a CT scan. They said, we're probably not going to find anything, but we need to do it just to make sure. I was in the hospital alone. This was the beginning of December um, because of COVID, right? So my husband and my son were home and I was waiting in some area they put you after you go through the scans. And the doctor comes over and he said, you know, he, I knew something was wrong because when he sat down next to me, I could tell that he was about to say something 
very, um, very damning. I, I just knew it. I could feel it. And when he told me that they saw a lesion on the right frontal lobe of my brain, it, it, it was like, um, you know, when you first find out you have breast cancer and it's literally your worst fear coming true. Wow. I can't believe this is my life and this is happening. And then when you sit there and you hear the doctor tell you this again, but it's in your brain, it's really hard to put into words how absolutely devastating it is. And of course your first immediate thoughts go to, this is metastasis. And all the other doctors agreed. It's most likely metastasis Um, from two two different hospitals. They said that it's possible a dormant cell could have broken off from the original breast cancer site and traveled to my brain. Chemo doesn't break the blood brain blood barrier and it could have been dormant there for a few years before something triggered, triggered it to start growing. So I was thinking, okay, um, this is not good. Um, they were some of my darkest days, uh, next to being an IV chemo. These were some of my darkest days because I know from being involved with the breasties and from being involved with other thriver communities, what this meant. And I was sort of mentally preparing in my head, um, you know, that I was not going to live a long life, that I was not going to see my son graduate from elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, whatever it is, get married, that I was, that he was going to be a kid who loses his mom at a young age. I was preparing myself for the heartache. And uh, after the surgery, it took a while for the pathology to come back. And I remember I was texting my breast oncologist and I'm like, what's going on? Where's the path? And she says, I'm on them, I'm on them, I'm on them, trust me. Um, And I was still recovering from my craniotomy, which was, I mean, mastectomies are no walk in the park, but let me tell you, craniotomy really sucks. (laughs) you know, you're uh, doped up on all sorts of medications and the steroids. And I was eating my face off (laughs) because of the steroids. And it was a very strange time. And, you know, it was like the second wave of COVID and um, we didn't know what was going to be happening. It was just insanity. So um, when the path finally came back, I remember I got the text from my oncologist and she, she sent a quick text because she was in the middle of seeing patients, but she's, but she texted me, not breast cancer. Yeah. <laughs> I looked at my phone. I went, Oh my God, it's not metastasis. <laughs> I was running around my house. It's not metastasis. <laughs> and I was like, well, what the fuck is it? <laughs> so, um, the initial diagnosis was an astroblastoma. But then the neuro-oncologist said that it's possible after further genetic testing, the diagnosis could change again. And it did just that. They did what's called a, is it methylation? Am I saying that correctly? Mm -hmm. They did a methylation test on the DNA tissue of the tumor. And that's when they came back and they said that it is a 
relifusion ependymoma, which is a pediatric cancer. And that it's possible this was actually in my brain before I even had breast cancer. Mm It was mostly lower grade. They, they, they graded it at grade two. Um, brain tumors are not the same as breast cancers where it's staging brain is grading. And um, the radiation that I had was technically adjuvant because they were able to remove the full tumor during the surgery. But they cannot say <clears throat> if this will or will not come back. And how was the radiation? The radiation was grueling in that it was every day. So I was spared radiation when I was going through breast cancer and now going through it with the brain tumor. It's um, very hard to very challenging mentally and physically to gear up to go back to treatment every day. Um, and I went a lot. They, they did a full 33 treatments with me because of the area. They felt that they could be a little bit more aggressive with less um, damage to residual tissue. And because of the relifusion component of the ependymoma, I guess that's what makes it a little bit more aggressive. They want it to be that much more aggressive with the radiation. Uh, and they, they feel good about it, you know, um, like with breast cancer, they said, if it doesn't come back within a few years, then there's probably a good chance that it won't come back again. But the neuro-oncologist would not say whether it would come back in five years, 10 years, 15 years. They just don't know. And this uncertainty, how is that for you? Very hard because I'm finally getting to the five-year mark for my breast cancer, which as you know, in the breast cancer community is a milestone. Um, so to, I'm still, to be perfectly honest, I'm still working through the aftermath of this because it's so fresh. My craniotomy was in December and my radiation ended the end of March. So I'm still working through this and trying to come to grips with the fact two different types of cancers can reoccur in my body. Mm-hmm. Uh, one having absolutely zero connection to the other. Yeah. So that's, um, that's a hard pill to swallow. I can imagine. Did you, you know, your son is five. So when he doesn't remember the original diagnosis of breast cancer, of course, but what about now? Did you tell him, you know, anything about what was happening with the surgery and the radiation? And if so, what did you say to him? Yes, it's a good point you brought up because he is well aware of everything that has occurred. And he knows that mommy had a brain boo-boo a bad brain boo-boo. And he knows that mommy then needed to go to get medicine for her brain boo-boo to help make sure that the brain boo-boo doesn't come back because we don't know whether it will or not, but hopefully the medicine will help and it won't come back. So in a lot of ways, 
it was harder this time with him because of COVID, right? We couldn't have help from friends or family members because the vaccines weren't readily available yet. We had a lot more help when I was going through breast cancer and he's older. He has different needs. Um, He's more active. He's much more aware. And in some ways it was that much more heartbreaking to not physically be able to be with him when I was feeling weak because radiation does make you feel weak. It makes you feel very tired um, because it's brain radiation. It made me feel um, very uh, foggy, Um, very just um, not all there sometimes, not right in the head. And there were times where he would come in and see me while I was laying down and I would, I would have to say to him, I'm sorry, mommy's not feeling well today. He goes, I know mommy. I just wanted to come in and give you a kiss. Hello. That's so sweet. So, you know, he handled it like a champ. I just hope that Knowing what it's like to grow up in a household where a parent is severely sick, I just hope that he doesn't have to experience it again. Of course. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and, and just, again, your honesty. And it's you've been through a lot, have handled it with grace. Um, but I, you know, I can't even imagine how hard and challenging the last you know, few years and even before that with your mom's diagnosis and treatment that has been. Before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't touch on or anything that you'd want to share more about? I would just like to say that it could be so easy for people to get caught up in the day-to-day that is life. And life could be challenging and hard and have its own difficulties aside from severe illness. But it's very easy, I think, to get gobbled up in the day to day and get aggravated and upset over things that in the long run are really not that important. Uh, And I would like to say that knowing so many women who are just fighting for their lives every day, be grateful for what you have, be grateful for your health. And just having that small amount of, of gratitude really does go a long way. And it really does put a lot of things into perspective because there are a lot of folks out there that are struggling and it's not easy, you know, be respectful, be kind. You don't know what other people are going through and, 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 and definitely immerse yourself in, in levels of gratitude, even if it's not on a daily basis, but on a weekly basis, because it's important. No, you're right. I think especially in this last year, everyone is going through something. And, you know, when people are having a bad day, we don't know what they're going through. And I think that there are so many people who would kill, not kill, it's a bad word, but who would, 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 do anything to have a regular day, right? A boring day. That absolutely. Uh, the 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 mundane is highly underrated. <laughs> yes, I love that. Um, but it's true that you know just to to get up and go to work and take care of your kids. And we we take I will say, 
we take those regular days for granted. You know, do and um, <clears throat> and I remember, you know, with COVID, when you couldn't have somebody, and it's different, of course, but when you couldn't have those regular days, it really makes you think about, you know, that we shouldn't we shouldn't just move through our days without purpose. It it really, you know, everything that we do, again, whether it may feel mundane, is so important and necessary. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Where can people find you on social media if they want to connect with you? Allie Lakes, A-L-Y-L-A-K-E-S. And that's on Instagram. That's on Instagram. Yeah, I'm more on Instagram than anything. I'm not on TikTok. Or- <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, that, that's like, I can't. I don't, there's people on there and I'm like, I, you have to dance, so I can't do that. Yeah, not my thing either. <laughs> um, well, thank you again. This was fantastic. Thanks. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I hope I'm, I'm able to help someone out there, even if it's just one person. I'm so happy. And please feel free to reach out to me anytime. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Alyssa. Her honesty, her openness and transparency about what going through cancer is really like is an important conversation that we need to be having. If you enjoyed the episode or other episodes of the podcast, I would be honored if you would leave a rating and or review over on Apple Podcasts, as that is the best way to help me grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. You can find Alyssa on Instagram at Allie Lakes, A-L-Y-L-A-K-E-S. And you can find me at Dr. Toplinski on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Have a wonderful weekend, and I will see all of you next week.